Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, just a quick encouragement. If you ever come late and you're like, I just need a place to sit. I want a place that's not obscured. I want a place where I don't have to fight over people to get into my seat. This right here is always available. I would love to see you here. Sometimes just come right up here and then we'll know each other. You can talk to me during the sermon. It's a lot of fun. Uh, anyway. Uh, all right. Well, let's get going. First of all, just thank you to Pastor Tom who preached last week. I know he does an excellent job every time he preaches. So thank you, Pastor Tom. You're awesome. Uh, this morning, we're going to cruise on. We're going to stay in the book of 1 Samuel as we're working our way to completion of the book of 1 Samuel. And today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23. So while you turn to 1 Samuel 23, uh, let, me, let me prep you with something that you already know but you probably live in a way as though you don't know it. So this is something you know and you believe to be true, but you probably live in such a way that you're acting like you don't know it. All right. Life does not make sense. All right. Life does not make sense. And, and then in that, it's, it's holistic. In that, people do not make sense. All right, let's unpack this a second. So when you think about people and you see them do something, you will often say to yourself, why would they do that? That was a dumb thing. Why would they drive like that? Why, why would this thing happen? So, and what you're doing is this. You're like, okay, you're using yourself as the standard, and you're, you're thinking, I would not do that. So if I would not do that, and people like me, who I hang out with, would not do that, then why would other people do that? And I would just say this. If you can just release that, if you can just be like, you know what? People don't make sense. If you'll just own that, oh, your life will be so much easier. It just will be. So like when you're driving down the road and somebody does something very bizarre in front of you, you just go, people don't make sense. You know, and like it just doesn't bother you anymore. And then you read it with the news and you're like, oh my, and people are freaking out. Like, how could this be a guy? You just look at the news and go, well, people don't make sense. You know, and that just becomes, that becomes your go-to. And I'm gonna help you out. I'm gonna take another step for you. One more step. God does not make sense. <laughs> God does, uh, again, the sooner you just own it, the easier your life will be. Because this is your, our thinking a lot of times. If I were God, I never would have, you know, insert thing here. Or if I were God of all the universe dealing with me, who is trying to be faithful to walk with the Lord, I would do this in my, my life. And so all we're doing is we're trying to, again, remake God in our image as though he, he were just some other version of us. And God, God is not a different version of us. He is separate, he is other, he is holy. But, but this is a truth we can all own. God does not make sense to me. God does not make sense to me. Like, I think those last couple words are really important. Like, God totally makes sense. He's God of order. He's sovereign. He's super intelligent, way more than that. But he doesn't make sense to me because I'm, I'm just a human. I'm broken. And if we take it all the way, at some point you're gonna look in the mirror and go, I don't make sense <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even understand myself sometimes. And so that's just the truth we live in. All right, broken world, but you own it, it's gonna get better. And how much more so if you were David? So like, I, I keep thinking this the whole time. Like, I would love to talk to David at this point in his life. Uh, he has a bizarre life before it's all said and done, but at this point in his life, so here's a guy that as a younger man was anointed knowing that he was gonna be the future king of all of Israel. Now, not all of Israel knows that, but he knows that. Um, so he's gonna be the future king of all Israel. If you had been anointed to be the future king and for you ladies, future queen of all of Israel, would you not think, my life's gonna be pretty easy from this, <laughs> this point on. God's sovereign hand of blessing is upon me. 
things should work out pretty good, I would expect. Like, it's all, it's all going to be great. So let's just catch up with where David is at this point in his life. So after God used him in a mighty way, as a result of his faith, I believe, as he stepped forward and defeated this beast of a man, this Goliath, ends up being elevated into the king's household till he is the general of the army of Israel, producing amazing victories, blessing the king of Israel, not trying to usurp his authority, staying in full submission, serving him, blessing him. You would think, all right, I have, this is the zenith. I'll just ride this out until I am king of Israel. I'm just going to do that. And uh, then suddenly this king that you have blessed tremendously turns against you. Not only is he, I mean, he turns against you in a big way. He wants to kill you. And then he tries to organize this entire army that you've been leading that was loyal to you. He's trying to get them now to kill you, including your best friend, who is his son. He's trying to get him to kill you. So you have to go on the run. Now, all this time, of course, the, where he's at with God, we're going to come back to that. So he's on the run. So he flees to a priest. And he goes to this priest named Ahimelech. And he says, listen, I need some help. Uh, doesn't tell him all that's going on. But he says, I need some food. I need a weapon. He goes, he, he tries to get some help from him. Ahimelech helps him because he's like, well, you're, you're David. You're like the general, the Lord loving, the deliverer, like the friend of Saul, servant of Saul. Like, yes, absolutely. Helps him out. Later, Saul comes to Ahimelech. Did you help David? He said, well, yeah, I helped David. David's one of your men. He's one of your guys. He's, you know, he's your boy. You know, and uh, Saul's like, well, I hate him and I want him dead. And so now I want you dead. And then he kills Ahimelech, priest of God. And then he's not just satisfied with that. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm so mad. I'm going to kill every priest of God. Just, just process that for a second. <laughs> kill every priest of God. Mm. Like that judgment was harsh. <laughs> when this man stood before the Lord. Mm. Uh, so anyway, you're going to kill every priest of God. And then I'm so angry. Not only am I going to, I'm going to kill every person in the town you're from. I'm going to kill every man, every woman, and every animal. I'm so angry. And so he goes to Nob and he just wipes it out. And you're like, what? What is going on here? Like I don't get what I'm seeing like at what point while David's on the run do you think he pauses and goes God have I missed something <laughs> like, like I, this doesn't seem like you know like you would think at some point you'd probably question God you might even question his goodness you know like God this doesn't make sense you don't make sense people Saul doesn't make sense like what is going none of this makes sense so this I think is something we can all relate to just where life just does, doesn't seem to make sense and yet if you read the Psalms that David wrote they're full of trust devotion, love, hope, like all of these things that we would not expect. I would expect a lot more complaining. Now, there are some complaining psalms, so to speak, uh, but they almost always praise the sovereignty of God. So 1 Samuel chapter 23, with that in mind, let's go forward a little bit. All right, verse 23. Uh, now they told David, oh, well, who are they and what's going on? Okay, let's pause a little bit. So if you were in chapter 22 and you went to verse 5, you would see that this prophet Gad has told David that he's to go into the land of Judah, and so David is now in the forest of Hereth, all right? So just keep that in mind. He's in the forest of Hereth. We'll come back to that. Uh, now back to 1 Samuel 23. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, Keilah. Okay, here's a, let's stop it. There are experts in the room, Hebrew experts who I've talked to. All right, so uh, this is one of those weird Hebrew words that has this thing called a yod in the middle of it. It's like this comma at the top of a word. And so it's probably pronounced something like Keilah or Keilah or something like that. And I'm just going to fake it as we go through, and we're just going to roll with it. So I'm just going to call it Kyla, and we'll just roll. So you'll be happy with it. I'll be happy with it. You're not a Hebrew scholar. Only a couple here. All right. So uh, fighting against Kyla and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, 
shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kyla. All right, so let's put it up here. Let's get a map. Love maps again. I say this all the time. In fact, it was funny. I was talking to uh, somebody in here. This is probably a few months ago. And somebody came up to me and they're like, you know what? I love maps too. I was like, we share something. All right, so uh, also too, we talked about the laser pointer. All right, so somebody said, stop the laser pointer. It's like, you know, we're all cats. We can't focus. So uh, we're going to, We've started drawing squares. This is what we're going to go with for now. We're going to try this for now. All right, so if you see Gath, southwest corner of the map, Gath has a little red square. That is the area of Kyla. That's the area of Kyla. And so when it says here, too, that David was hiding in the forest of Hereth, the forest of Hereth is just northeast of that smaller red square. So just for some context, but what you really need to know is it's right on the border of Philistia. All right, because the Philistines are going to come over. They're going to invade uh, Kyla and, and take their stuff. So somebody in the town or somebody in the region comes to David and says, listen, David, uh, the town of Kyla, which is just right over there, like the Philistines have invaded. Uh, they've come to rob them, steal, kill, murder, destroy, all the stuff they do. Would you be willing to intervene? And so David's like, all right. I'll tell you what, hold on, let me go and I'm going to talk to God about it. And so he goes to the Lord in whatever way. And we don't know how. I don't know if he goes back and finds uh, Gad, this prophet, uh, or if just the Holy Spirit speaks to him because he has the anointing upon him in a particular way. Uh, only one priest of all of them escaped, Abiathar. He doesn't show up for a few more verses. So however, David gets this information. He goes, God, and he feels very sure, God has told me that I'm supposed to go do this. Uh, and so let's go uh, to the next part here. But actually, before we do, one thing I said a few weeks ago is that when God has blessed you with power and resources, there is an expectation upon you that you will use those to help those who don't have those things. Now, it's not everybody all the time everywhere, but there are times when just the Lord moves in your life and it's like, listen, this person's in need. You can provide for them. Please provide for them. Uh, very much a New Testament principle from 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Uh, this is what John writes. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the idea is this. If you're going to love the Lord, you're going to say you love the Lord, show that you love the Lord by the way you handle your stuff. And in this case, David's a guy who has some power. So these people are powerless, and so he is going to intervene to, to work in their life. And one thing I love about David in all of this is despite the craziness of life and how people don't make sense, God doesn't make sense, he doesn't make sense, despite all of this, he never lets it deviate him from his mission that he feels God's called him to. And I feel like as we talk about lessons learned from scripture, that's, that might be one where I would pause and go, okay, listen, for us, the world doesn't make sense. Like, life doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. I know to, God, uh, to us, God doesn't always make sense. When you're hitting those moments in life and you're just feeling like, I just don't know how much more I can do of this like of the whole thing, like I, I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated. Don't let the discouragement of the world or even your confusion about God's activity dissuade you from living the life God's called you to live. David's a great model. He keeps his eyes on the Lord the whole time. He stays submitted to the Lord. We don't see him turn on the Lord, yell at the Lord, like, God, how could you let, I thought I was supposed to. He never becomes proud in that way. He stays humble. So when you hit the skids in life, and you will, and people are against you, or your body turns against you, or what, just the world's not making sense anymore. Just, just acknowledge the truth. The world doesn't make sense. God doesn't make sense to me, but I can trust him. He's called me, and I can still serve him faithfully despite what's going on in my life. Like, that is a, a great place to live, and that's where David lives. So he's keeping his eyes on the Lord and, and pursuing him. So then you get to verses three and four. But David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah how much more then if we go to Kila against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, 
go down to Kila, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Now, I do love this. And I, let me tell you how I think this went down. So David is sitting there. He's like, these guys are on the run. Now, he's got about 400 people with him. Before the passage is over, it'll talk about 600 men with him. So he's between four and six uh, in here somewhere. It was 422, 600 before we're done with 23. So he's got, you know, four to 600 men with him. These are warriors, but they're on the run. And Saul is out to get him. Now, uh, Saul, before we're done here, is going to amass his armies to come and get him. Saul's army, much bigger than David's army. So Saul's going to come to get him. So these guys are on the run. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. They don't know if they'll make it through the night. They may wake up in the middle of the night to Saul's army being there, suddenly having to grab a sword and probably just dying because there'll be way more soldiers than you can fight. Like, that's the reality. So David comes to these guys, and he's like, all right, guys, here's the deal. Kyla's being attacked by the Philistines. We're going to go down, and we're going to take it to him. We're going to deliver this town. And, of course, his soldiers are like, okay, minute, please. We're on the run for our lives. Like, we don't know where we're going to eat. We don't know how we're going to live. Saul's army could show up at any time. And you want us to go intervene in somebody else's mess and try to deliver them. And David's like, I, th- I really thought God told me to do that. Uh, but he's like, now that, you, now that I hear you, that makes sense. And so then he goes back to the Lord. And he's like, all right, Lord, did you really mean that? <laughs> Okay, okay, can you just imagine that? Uh, Lord, you t- I, okay, I get you told me that before. Did you really, as, as though God's gonna go, oh, I didn't know your men were against it. Um, I mean, yeah, dang. Uh, yeah, never mind. No, forget it. Yeah, that makes much more sense. I didn't think it through. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, God's not gonna do that. So it's just kind of funny to me that, that he goes back a second time. And, you know, like if I were a sarcastic God, I would probably be snarky about it. And if this were another uh, person, another part of scripture, maybe God would say something. But, but God is so kind to David. And he just affirms him. He's like, no, no, no. What I said the first time, I meant, why don't you go and save the residents of Kilah? I'm going to give them uh, into your hand. And so then you get to verse five. Verse five says, and David and his men went to Kilah and they fought with the Philistines and they brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. All right, let me just say this. And I say this probably as a man more than anything else. When you give me a great battle took place and then it's over in one verse, I am very disheartened. Like, I, I want the story. Who did what? Who killed who? How did it go down? Were they toe-to-toe? Somebody jumping off a rock, pulling out his uh, sword. It's gleaming in the sun as he drives it into his enemy. Like, I want the stuff. Uh, and I get it. That's not why the Bible is written. Uh, I just think it would be more interesting. But, uh, I mean... Forgive me, that's actually sounded horrible. But anyway, so this idea. So uh, here it is. He goes, they fight. It's all said and done. But here's another thing when you're reading scripture. When you're reading scripture, you got to be careful you don't miss some stuff that should make you stop and go, what? So there was something in here that you probably should have paused at. And David and his men went to Kilah, fought with the Philistines, and brought away their livestock. What were their cows doing with them in battle? That's actually a great question. Who brings your livestock to a battle? All right, so this goes back to the beginning of the chapter when we find that the Philistines go to fight Kyla and are robbing the threshing floors. So this tells us it's the end of harvest. They're bringing all the grain. They're sorting the grain. They're organizing. They're getting great. So, like, I have never been a farmer. I'm just going to put that out there. You may have thought otherwise, but I have never run a farm, never been, had farm equipment. Uh, I have gardened. That's about the best I can do. Um, so here's, I'm just thinking about this. Now, I have a friend who's a farmer in Kansas, uh, Alan, who I still love. Uh, so Alan is out there working in Kansas. He busts his hiney to, to farm. I mean, like the whole, it's all the stuff. And he works so hard, and you have to take out a loan uh, a lot of times just to get the stuff 
for the seed and then the fertilizers and then your farm equipment and it breaks down and then you got to stop and fix it when you're supposed to be doing other stuff and you can't afford all the hired hands that you need. It's a nightmare. And they do all this just so that we can, you know, pay 69 cents for a, a tomato or something. So that's just crazy. Um, so then they do all this work. Can you imagine doing all that work and you are leveraged? Uh, like you need this harvest. This harvest is it, is, it pays off all that you're indebted to. It provides the food for your family and it's going to provide for the next year so that you can get a little bit ahead in life. Can you imagine going through all of that and when it comes to harvest time, a, an army walks over the hill and they just take it all. I mean, the discouragement that would be upon these people. I mean, there's a part of me that when they go to David and they tell him this, I'm just, I'm picturing David and even his men once they got over this idea that like people are trying to kill us too. There's this idea of like, yeah, we should, we should go help them. This is, this is not right. But, but here's the thing. The reason they've shown up with their livestock is because this is the best way to do it. Like we didn't have to go through any of the work. Our cattle uh, need good food. I mean, cattle need good food. The only reason you're getting good barbecue uh, in the Midwest with the cows, here you get it with uh, pigs. But the, side, the only reason you get good barbecue is because they've been fed well, right? You get underfed cattle. They're like, when I was in Africa, I saw cattle you didn't want to eat. Like, like we're slaughter, slaughter a cow for you. I'd be like, no, thanks. That's, uh, that's all right. I'll eat fish. You got fish? Like, that's just, it's a different world. So they want to get them well fed. So they bring all their cattle. And the idea is that you guys have done all the work. We're just going to feed our cattle till they are f- just fat on all of you, what you have done. It's going to ruin your lives. But if you're going to say anything about it, we're just going to kill you. And so this is the situation that they're in. This is what David uh, and his men step into. So a little bit probably of why they brought their cattle uh, to battle. Uh, all right, go ahead. verse six. So when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Kilah, he had come down with the ephod in his hands. Now I love verse six. Verse six is thrown in there like just giving you an information nugget. So the information nugget is this, Abiathar comes down. Now it may be because scripture isn't always kind of chronological, like this happened, then this happened. Uh, sometimes things are conflated, sometimes they're out of order. It might be that while, while David is down doing what Saul should have been doing, like, while, while he's down in Kyla doing Saul's job, that, that Saul very well could have just been wiping out uh, the priests at that moment and that the Abiathar shows up and it's kind of all happening at the same time. But uh, Abiathar shows up, David gets the whole deal, we know that, that was last chapter, uh, and now he ends up with this ephod. And when, he, when it says that he came with the ephod, like there's a part of us that shot and go, ooh, he brought an ephod. Now we don't live a few thousand years ago when this is written, so you're not having that response. But let me just tell you, this is a moment where we pause and we go, oh, he brought the ephod. So uh, the ephod is this uh, garment that they would wear. If you've been in church long enough or grew up in Sunday school, you probably saw one of these. Um, it's this like vestment piece that a, a priest would put on. It had this little breastplate on it full of jewels. They all indicated this cool stuff. But the thing about the, the ephod is it had this little pocket in it where you store these two, <laughs> I want to call them magic stones, but it makes it sound bad. Uh, the, this uh, Urim and Thummim. And there are two stones that God used in some way, we don't know how, where the priest would, you know, Lord, do you want us to do this? You know, and then, I mean, I really think it was something like that. Um, and then they're like, seven, all right. You know, so like, I don't know. So whatever it was, and I never would say to you, go roll dice to figure out what God has for your life. That, that's a bad idea. But in this case, there was something like that. And so he shows up with the ephod, and this is a way to hear from God. And so like, that's it. Yay, that's a great thing. We want that. So he shows up with that, verse six, verse seven. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kila, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. All right, let's just, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Now, we already know Saul's a man without character, right? Man without character. You have just wiped out every priest of God that you could find. Now, he doesn't know he missed one, but you just wiped out everyone. You killed their wives. You killed other men that knew them. You wiped out their town. You killed their dog. Like, it is like, you are a horrible, and you're like, God has given me. And it just reminds me of this. 
everybody thinks God is on their side. Everybody just thinks, because we tend to feel, I know God's some version of me. He's just a better version of me. I know how I would think. I know how he would think. God must agree with me in everything that I agree with, right? Like this, that tends to be how people are. Even if you're not that way, even if we're not that way, that's how people tend to be. And, uh, and even Saul is like, you know, here is God providing for me. And li- listen, bro, God doesn't want your glory. He's not giving you his. You guys are not on the same team, uh, just for clarity. But this is his declarations. God has given him into my hands, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kila to besiege David and his men. All right, so Saul now has gathered an army. We don't know how many, it says he's rallied the troops how many has he get rallied? We don't know. Now, the last time he did this, uh, earlier in scripture, we saw that he was able to rally like, I don't know, 210,000 uh, people to his, to his side. Uh, but then later on, uh, what we're going to find is he has about 3,000 people going after David. So there's somewhere between 3,000 and 210,000 people coming after David and his men. All right. So it doesn't, however many it is, it's a lot. Uh, because David only has four or 600-ish men, four to 600 men. And so there are thousands coming against him. And, and this is, the soldiers are right. Like, this doesn't make sense. God doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Life doesn't make sense. But, but there is this thing in me that, that, like, when I see insurmountable odds, sometimes I sit back and I just think, oh, God's in it. Right? God's in it. Because I think when we face insurmountable odds and then we come through okay, or God brings deliverance, in that moment, God gets all the glory, all of it. Because if it had been us, and you know, well, we fought real hard, and there were only a little bit more than us, or there was twice as many of us, but we overcame, it becomes the glory of self. But in this case, if God delivers, I mean, it is all God. God took care of that. And I just, can I just point that out in your own life? <laughs> that like, when you face insurmountable odds, and some of you would say, I am in that right now. Like, I would just tell you, oh, sounds like God's in it. It just sounds like God's in it. When you hit something that like, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. So then when you do come through it, you're gonna do nothing but give glory to God. That's amazing. So uh, it doesn't always feel amazing in the moment. It's easier to say from the outside, but yeah, that's how it's going. All right, so here are instrumental odds coming against him, trying to figure things out. Now, let's go forward a little bit. Uh, where were we? Uh, Saul summoned all the people of war. Now we're in verse nine. David knew that Saul was plotting against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Uh, All right, so... I, I gotta be honest with you. I'm not mad at the people of Kyla. I get it. Like, David, you came, you delivered us. That's amazing. But right behind you is a massive army about to roll in. And if they ask, like, release David to us, we are going to release you to your future. Uh, we're just gonna, we are not going to die for you. We almost died because of Philistines. You saved us. Thank you. But there's a bigger army behind you, and we're going to submit to whoever has the biggest sword. So the next guy behind you, we're just going to submit. So uh, th- I get it. I'm not, I'm not mad at them at all. I get it. Then we get to verse 13. Then David and his men, who were about 600, so now we're full 600, arose and departed from Kila, and they went wherever they could go. They went wherever they could go. I, I love this, by the way. They just went wherever they could go. They, they go out, and they're just figuring it out as they go. And it reminds me of just how often in life we're just not sure of our next step. 
So here's David, has the spirit of the Lord upon him, has his own personal priest with an ephod, with the Urim and the Thummim that they can just roll and get the will of God. And they're just like, not sure where to go now. I'll just, we'll just walk in faith. We'll just take steps to trust that God will get us there. If you ever feel like that's your life, like I don't have clarity about where God wants me to go, what God wants me to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Can I just, that's the normal Christian life. That we, get this, we get this revelation of the character of God, the general will of the Lord, but he's not gonna tell you who you should marry, where you should work, where you should live, if you can buy that car, if your wife should buy that two-seater sports car that you really want. Like, that, like it doesn't tell you that stuff. So all you do now is you just make the best decisions you can and you just step in faith. And you just step in faith. And it will feel at times like you are wandering through life. But as a wise man once said, not all who wander are lost, right? Some of us can just trust that God is in it no matter where we go. His hand is upon us and he is sovereign over all things. And that's how David lives his life. So here we are. David is wandering, uh, but it's okay. He goes wherever he feels like he needs to go. Uh, so now let's pick back up uh, verse 13. Then David and his men who were about 600 arose. They departed from Kilah. They went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. <laughs> I love the idea that Saul seeks him every day. Like, dude, are you running a kingdom here? Or what are you, what are you doing? And like, I don't have time to run the kingdom. I got to kill this guy. So that's what he's all focused on as though this is the biggest issue he's ever concerned with. And I love the end of that too. But God did not give him into his hand, reminding us that God is sovereignly protecting David. But if you were to ask David, he'd be like, I, don't, I guess he is. Like, I don't know. And so if you were to say that, if I ask you, like, do you believe God's hand is on your life and that he's doing things in your life? And you were like, I guess he is. You know, like that's, you're living the normal life. That's the normal life. And yet behind the scenes, what you can't see, what David couldn't see is God did not give him into his hand. Meaning God sovereignly has his hand on you, is providing for you, is leading you. But you're gonna hit discouragements, frustrations. David's on the run for his life. He's losing men in battle. I mean, it's, it doesn't make, life doesn't make sense. People don't make sense. God doesn't make sense to us. So all part of the same package. All right. But Jonathan uh, shows up now, verse 15. Uh, oh, actually, we had a map. Do we have our map? Let's get our map back up here. All right. Uh, we've moved our square now. So if you're wondering now when it comes back and he's hiding in the wilderness of Ziph, the wilderness of Ziph is southeast of Hebron, and it's about, uh, about 12 miles-ish southeast from uh, where we were uh, previously in Kyla. So this is kind of where we are now. Uh, just letting you know where they move around a bit. And the reason I share these things, I know I didn't change your life spiritually, I just want to remind you that all we're talking about is real. None of this is made up. These are real things, real people, real events. Uh, all this really happened. Uh, so now, uh, verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Now, <laughs> I love this whole idea. Saul has got his entire army, his entire network of spies trying to find David, and none of them can. They get general regions, but they can't ever find him. Jonathan, Saul's son, when he wants to find David, he just walks right up to him. <laughs> it's just like, all right, I don't know where he is, Dad, sorry. And he just walks in like, hey, Dave. So anyway, um, you know, <laughs> it's just what a great conversation. Uh, here they are hanging out. Now, I want to draw your attention to stuff you might have missed, verse 16, into verse 16. And he strengthened his hand in God. 
All right, so the purpose of Jonathan showing up was the purpose of encouragement. He's like, dude, I'm just here to let you know. I got your back. God's got you. Like, they're gonna make a covenant again together. They've made several uh, covenants together. Jonathan, being a man of character, is there uh, to show the love of the Lord to David. Uh, shows up to encourage him. They're gonna make a covenant. It's the third covenant they're gonna make together. Now, one note here that I'm gonna tell you as a preview. Neither of them knows this, but this will be the last time they're together. Um, Jonathan uh, will not be able to meet with David after this. Uh, well, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but it gets, it gets dark. So, um, but they're making this covenant. We're going to be together. You're going to rule. I'm going to be right by your side. I got your back. They're swearing to God they're going to do this thing. But he's there for encouragement. So again, lessons learned for me before we get too far. And I could put it at the end, but I want to put it here. Like, I think one of the things we're supposed to do, this is a Bible thing. One of the things we're supposed to do is to encourage one another. This comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24, 25. This idea that, that we spur one another on to, to love and good deeds, that we, we don't stop meeting together. God wants us to meet together in assemblies. Um, but then we also encourage one another as the day of Christ's return is approaching. Like, that's something we're supposed to do. And so if there's, let me pause. If there's somebody in your orbit right now that is going through a hard time, and, and you think they might be encouraged if you just texted them to say, hey, I just want you to know, I'm thinking about you today. Love you, praying for you. Like, you can do that right now. <laughs> you can just ignore me, pick up your phone, and shoot it out there, or if you need to call them later or something like that. And I wonder this too. Like, Jonathan shows up to encourage David, who's got to be super discouraged. I wonder if God sent him. I wonder if Jonathan thinks it's his idea, but God spurred him on. And, and so I wonder sometimes if God does that with us, because he's sovereign, he can do whatever he wants. If there's just times suddenly you feel like out of the blue, you know, like, I need to call this person. I need to text this person. I need to let them know that I care about them, I love them. And even though I can't do anything to change their situation, that somebody at least gets that they're going through a hard time and loves them. Like, that's, that's a very Jesus-y kind of thing. So, like, just want to encourage you uh, in that. Something to do. All right. Uh, so, uh, Jonathan's a man of character, but there are other people who are not people of character. Let's go to verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now, come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Like, as though Saul can give the blessing of the Lord to other people. All right, verse 22. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him. For it is told me that he is very cunning. So therefore, uh, see therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. And then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, and the Arabath in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock, and he lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger uh, came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned for pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the rock of escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So I, I love how this is going to draw to an end here at the end of the story. The end of the story is this, is that Saul's coming after him. The odds are insurmountable. And at the last minute, Saul gets word that they're being invaded and he has to leave. 
Like that is just how God does what he does. So this is, let me encourage you this. The, the reason I think we get discouraged with God, the reason we get frustrated with God, the reason we doubt God, I think, is because we're too early in the story. If you knew how it would all play out, then you'd be like, oh, man, I didn't know it was going to work out that way. I would, I would have trusted the Lord. Like imagine the Lord gave you like a, a little booklet that was the sum of the rest of your life. I say booklet because where I'm at, some of you are going to get a book. Uh, some get a one-page write-up. But, but we get this, like, how it's going to turn out. So this is the rest of your life written out here. And you look at this thing, and you're like, oh, it works out. Everything comes out great. My kids turn out great. I turn out great. I, like, we go through this dark period, but then it emerges, and God's amazing. Oh, why did I ever doubt? Like, I th just think we're too early in the story. So my thing would be this. Why don't you live as though you know how the story's actually written? That in the end, God will come through. In the end, God will get the glory. In the end, no matter what happens, though it be death, we're going to be okay. Like if we just, if we would live that way, it would change things. Um, and so now for me, as we, as we bring that idea into the lessons learned, let's, let's land on that. So we get the lessons learned. I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. Life doesn't make sense. People don't make sense. God doesn't make sense to us. If you're going to ask me my biggest takeaway from this, and even probably just a study of 1 Samuel, is that God is just not ever going to make sense to you. The sooner you own that, the better off you're going to be. That life is full of pain, it's confusion, it's death. That's one side. The other side, depending on where you are in life, is joy, happiness, love, uh, filled with the Spirit of God, like all this great stuff. But, but it's always a mix of that. I love what one of the authors um, said that I was studying for this week, uh, Robert Chisholm Jr. He says this, God does not abandon his chosen servants even when he places them in harm's way. Uh, just something about that just struck me like, that's interesting. Like to say like, this world has brought this against me. You know, sometimes God lets it come against you. Like he's got a purpose he's working that we just don't get. But that, that's how God is, right? So the reason we know he's that way is, is because of the gospel. Like you want to talk about God not making sense. Like if you, if you were to take somebody who doesn't know anything about the Bible or God or how this works, and you explain to them the gospel for the first time, you want to talk about one of the most illogical things that you could ever explain to anyone. The gospel doesn't make sense. Like if you were God, is that how you would save people? Like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my divine and holy son, whom I love, who is, who is part of me, and I'm going to let him go and die for the most <laughs> miserable, sinful people who hate me. And then after he dies and they kill him, then I'm going to offer them now through faith and what he has done. You can be my children. Like, that's not what I'd have done. I, I would have been like, I'm just going to smoke y'all and I'm going to start fresh for some people I like. You know, like that's what I would do. And God didn't do any of that. Like the gospel doesn't make sense. That one man would take on himself the sins of all others. And that you, through no effort on your behalf, could step into the righteousness of God through faith. I don't, that didn't make sense. What a, what a weird thing. Why would you even do that? So some of my favorite verses, which I, you need to memorize these, even if you're a, I don't memorize scripture person. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which I memorized years ago, and I would add to it 10, but I'll give you, I'll give you a pass on just two verses if you memorize these. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, something you didn't, you didn't deserve this. You don't earn this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Okay. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Just this idea that I can have salvation through faith. Like, I don't, I don't have to work real hard. I don't have to achieve stuff. I don't have to give a lot of money away. I don't even have to go to church every Sunday. Like, like all these things. For my grace through faith. 
It's not of yourselves. And the reason it's not of ourselves is so that none of us can stand before God and say, look what I have done. I deserve to be here. Like there's gonna come a day when I stand before God and God's gonna look at me and say, Jeff, why should I let you into my kingdom? And I'll say, there is no reason in the world that you should ever let me into your kingdom. But Jesus said I could come and I'm with him. All right, so I'm coming in. So to the glory of God, let me pray for us. God, you're so good. Thank you so much. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. And so those of us who put our faith in you, and Lord, may you hear afresh from us as our, as our hearts corporately respond. Jesus, we have total faith in you. We believe in you, that you're the one who came and died for us, resurrected from the grave, satisfying the wrath of God, and that we, by faith now, can step into that undeserved, glorious grace of God, given for no reason other than God is love to his people. May you be glorified, Father. Thank you for this day. Amen.